Welcome to the JFI's weekly Choosing Up podcast with author and therapist Alana Kandel and me, your host, Ellie Bass. Each week, we explore how to get into a Choosing Up headspace using wisdom from Alana's book of the same name, as well as Jewish wisdom, psychology, and more. Join us now for this week's episode. Let's choose up. Lana, what's happening? Tell us what's the choosing up story these days. Huh. The choosing up story these days is, I think, about, well, it's in a lot of different directions. And, and if you weren't with us last week, the one piece I think that is the foundation of the perspective that we are bringing to life and to the COVID-19 experience is that we are part of a larger story and that we matter in that story and that we have choices about how we live through this experience. And it can be really easy to get snagged into feeling that everything is happening to us. And so what we're trying to do is to flip the paradigm and the experience to go from a feeling of passivity to feeling like circumstances are happening to us and rather to seizing this really as an opportunity. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. I don't mean to say that this is only a spiritual experience. It is a spiritual experience in the context of a global pandemic. And anytime there is something happening on a world scale, there is a very personal message sent to each and every one of us. It's actually the Ramban, Maimonides says that if there is suffering in the world and we don't take the opportunity to examine our own Masim, our own actions, that it is described as cruelty, which is, I think, a really bold and important statement for us, which is to say what's happening on the world stage, what is happening to your neighbor, what is happening in your family, and what is happening throughout the country and across the world has very personal implications for us. So it's a big responsibility. At the same time, it's, it's an incredible opportunity because what it means is that we get to become the heroes in this storyline. And heroism is not always recognized. It is certainly something that comes usually without a cape, as much as I would love a cape, right? We should have like superhero day, yeah? (laughs) Heroism is the ways that we become really proactive in our lives and take this opportunity to become great people. And again, I I want to uh, make sure that we are defining greatness because we live in a culture Uh, where there's a cult of celebrity, where being recognized in in some public way is often the metric that we use to help us think about value. And so really this experience is flipping that on its head and saying that greatness is going to happen inside, inside ourselves, inside our homes, inside our minds, and and how we are living through this experience. So, you know, you asked kind of like, how are we choosing up right now? And and so the the foundation is to understand that choosing up is about this intentional practice. It's moment to moment, really seeking meaning, growth, and ultimately God in the experience. And so what what I'm seeing for myself, with my clients, with, with friends and family, is that I think the choosing up push and the message right now is about connection and I think it's about asking ourselves what kind of connection are we having right now I'm seeing a lot of what I would describe as low quality connection 
in the world. And I think it was the case before COVID-19. And in, in a funny way, it still is the case right now. What do I mean? What, first of all, let's define our concepts. Your low quality connection is when we are present, but not really present. And certainly our use of phones and hyper connectivity in a sort of faux connected way has contributed to that in a lot of ways. It seems to me like there's a lot more of that happening too, because, you know, we're partly in a loop of more information means more control. And, yeah. and I think that a lot of us are, you know, sort of reading the news avidly or are choosing to stay away from it altogether. But I think there is that tendency to, okay, what's happening now? Yeah, and, and I, I would agree, Elliot, and I don't think it's just the news information. I think it's all of the opportunities that we have suddenly to connect in this whole other way. Mm -hmm. uh, this past weekend, we were laughing as a family, like we had a jam-packed Zoom schedule on Sunday. You know, this one had that class, and that one had this lecture, and we were going to this one together, and that one, who, where, which room are you going to be in, and can we watch it later, and, and which is incredible. And yet it still is contributing, I believe, to some of that low quality connection. Mm -hmm. And it's happening also when, when folks are living in close spaces together because we work together all the time, but are we really being together? And so part of the choosing up message is to ask ourselves, what kinds of connections am I having? When I am with my kid, when I am with my partner, when I am talking with someone by FaceTime or Zoom or on the phone, am I really attentive? Am I really responsive? Am I really engaging with what they're saying? And this is an idea actually from EFT, Emotion-Focused Therapy, where we talk about presence and engagement with, with that lens. And what I'm seeing is a lot of people are getting really irritated with the people they're living with. And one of the things that I've talked to clients about this week is setting aside intentional time when you're really going to be together. Because when there's such mass togetherness, we might not actually be having high quality connection. And, and at a spiritual level, this is really important why. We are charged with the mission of being kadosh, of being what we often translate as holy, or sometimes we use the word sanctified for, for Kedusha. Uh, I, I love the, the translation that Rabbi, Rabbi Gershenfeld gives in Israel, and he says as follows, he says that Kedusha, being Kadosh, is passionate connection. And if there were ever a time for us to think, how can we become more passionately connected right now? with ourselves, with God, and with each other, that is the call of the moment. And, and so when, when we might have a friend who we normally text, right, choosing up might look like picking up the phone and, and having a conversation. If we're living with people, getting more intentional about the times we spend together. And what does that look like being maybe electronics free, working on some of the basics that we all kind of know theoretically, active communication, active listening, but really bringing it back to some of those basics. And what we find is that if we can have high quality connection, even in little doses, then we actually downregulate our nervous system, right? We as human beings are co-regulators, which means that we regulate our nervous system 
often best with another human being. Think about a baby. Yeah? They need someone else to help them settle. And as we develop, we continue to need and crave that. So if we can think about having more passionate connection, more high quality connection in our life, then I think it will serve as the container for all of the other struggles and ways that we, we all are being stretched. Can you give an example, like what is the difference between high quality connection and say lower quality connection? What does that look like? What does it sound like? Sure. So Ellie, I just, I have to check a message here, but yeah, keep, keep talking to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so no, no, I'm, I'm listening to you, but you know, I'm, I'm still down here. Yeah. So, so, and, and I should say that electronics is not the only culprit in low quality connection. Okay. Uh, low quality connection happens when we multitask and, and surprise. Yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll like, just try to check in. Like how many times have I had a conversation with my kids where I've looked them in the eye today? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So eye contact is a really key part, as you point out of high quality connection. So it's interesting. We, we talk about this when we're coaching parents with kids who are having a hard time. We say stop and drop. And we do this for both the child and the parent, right? What are you doing? Stop, drop, get to their level, make eye contact. But what actually happens, a byproduct, is the parent also downregulates. I know you and I have talked about this, right? If you're ever like up in your head, like lie down on the floor. Sometimes when I'm working with clients who, who have a trauma history and they dissociate in session, they, they, what they describe as kind of feel that they're out of their body, some of the grounding we do is just pedal your feet on the floor. And so high quality connection is I'm on the ground with you wherever you are. And so when a child is dysregulated and we stop, drop and make that eye contact, we not only are connecting to them, we're becoming more connected inside of ourselves. And let's not fool anybody. We are all struggling with varying levels of emotional dysregulation and anxiety right now. And the more grounded we can become, the higher quality our connection will be. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, I like that too, because it, it suggests the idea of like, if, if real connection is like point A connects with point B, if you're point A, you have to be connected. You actually have to be point A. Like you can't be sort of all over the place. You have to be somewhere. And it seems like that stop drop type of way of doing things makes it, okay, I'm here. Now I can connect with you. Yes. Yes. And that's why when we speak about passionate connection and this idea of Kedusha, it's not just connection with, an, with another human being. It is connection with self and connection with God. And to the degree to which I am present inside myself and that godly soul within me is the degree to which I will be able to connect to, to the other. I love that. And I think, you know, when we were talking earlier, you were mentioning that there was a real um, push from a lot of the um, rabbis around the world to do Shabbat this week. So, you know, in terms of connection, like, um, you know, what does that mean for connection? I think a lot of people are asking the question, well, I'm at home all the time, you know, mm -hmm. like what, what will, what will Shabbat do for me in terms of changing my experience right now, if you don't necessarily have that as part of your regular life? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, there, there has been a, a collective statement from the chief rabbis throughout the world to push a higher level of Shabbat observance this week. 
And that might look like taking on a little bit more of a mitzvah, lighting Shabbat candles if you, if you don't normally. Uh, it might be trying to really disconnect for, for that full Shabbat experience. And they, they've encouraged people to reach out to people before Shabbat, to, to wish them a good Shabbos, to, to connect. And so, you know, I, I think the question is, why, why now? Right. And, then, and then why Shabbat? Can we, can we answer it in two parts? Yeah, please. Yeah. So the why now, when we are in crisis, again, it's an incredible opportunity. And crisis is actually the time when we are supposed to become more spiritually awake. The Ramban Nachmanides actually talks about in his discussion of prayer, he says there is only one time when we are obligated from the Torah, when we are biblically obligated to pray. And that is when we are in crisis. And he brings, he brings a Pasuk, a verse from the Torah, where he, as his proof text, where he says, you know, when you go out to battle, you'll sound the shofar, and this is that calling out to God. And, you know, you, anyone who knows me knows that I'm fascinated by language. And so I've been watching the metaphors, again, that, that are being used in the media. And we certainly are evoking battle type language, right? We are in the battle against coronavirus. There are the frontline workers. And there, there's this other level at which, which the discourse is picking up, which is around the anxiety. And, and if you look at the language around anxiety, we are gripped by anxiety. We are overcome by fear. And so if there is a time when, when we awaken spiritually, when we want to become, again, more passionately connected with God, it's in crisis. Yeah, but, and I think the dichotomy of that is it's really hard to feel like you're in choice when you ex are experiencing yourself as in crisis. Um, yes. I think that's the hard part of that language of feeling like you're gripped by something or you're sort of, you know, put in isolation is where's my choice here? Because choice, I think, and passion are somehow related. Choice and passion? Yes, because passion is, I'm at making an active choice, again, to, to use our word within our definition, about where I want to be and what direction I want to be going in. So, so if we said kind of the why, why is Shabbat observance the what? So, Shabbat comes to reconnect. Shabbat comes to bring light to an otherwise dark world. And, and this is true in, at a metaphoric level, it's true at a physical level. So I said, you know, Ellie, like one thing you might wanna do if, if this is not something you are already doing, maybe light Shabbat candles this week. And there are a few reasons given for why we light Shabbat candles. One is that it is a way to honor the Shabbat. You know, it's, we're having this banquet with, with the Almighty, with the creator of the world, our, our family perhaps, or maybe just ourselves. And, and we light these candles as we would if we were setting a table. Another, and I think this is fascinating, is for Oneg Shabbos, for the pleasure of, of our Shabbat observance, because we're told that we, don't, we won't enjoy food that we can't see. And the third reason, and this is where I, I want to explore a little bit more with, with you this morning, is that the Shabbat lights increase what we call Shalom Bait, right? Peace in the home. And at a down on the ground level, the explanation that's given is 
if you're in the dark, you're going to stumble all over everything and then you're going to get annoyed. Right? So I love Brene Brown talks about how we all jump to blame, right? You trip over something and you think who left it here. I mean, even if you're living on your own, right? Our mind is like, why is that thing there? And, and when there is light, we're not going to trip over those things. Right. But the explanation goes further. And I love how Rabbi Eliezer Malamed in his books, The Laws of Shabbat, says that once the light is on, you all of a sudden see that it wasn't such chaos. That even if there's stuff on the floor, like it's kind of in its place or there is a little bit of a path and you can make your way around it. And if that's the case on a physical level, if that is what the intention is when we begin the Shabbat experience by increasing light in the physical world, then it's that much more so in the spiritual world, which is to say that Shabbat brings light into the world. And that Shabbat observance is there to illuminate the darkness and to bring some order to the chaos. And that doesn't mean that that's how it always feels when we first arrive there. Okay? And, and, and I am sensitive to the struggle of perhaps being on our own, perhaps caring for a lot of people in a small space. All of us are, are being pushed and squeezed in our own unique ways. But Shabbat, we're told, is, is comparable to observing all of the mitzvahs of the Torah. And the mitzvahs of the Torah, each and every detail, are there to help us perfect our relationship between body and soul, and between us and God. And when we, when we stop for a day and we acknowledge that there's someone running the world and it isn't us, then it's the opportunity to bring the body and soul back into that connection and to really bring peace back into the world. Right? Where, whereas during the rest of the week, everything is kind of all off in different directions and it's easy or easier to get caught up in the belief that we're running the show. By observing Shabbat, we say there is a creator and it's not me. And when we do that, we can begin to look in the darkness for the light. We can begin to reconnect to, ah, there's a plan here. Can't see it all right now. Not sure I can make sense of this. You know, I, I am absolutely positive that God has a plan for COVID-19. I have no idea what it is. I love that too, because then it seems it really fits with what, um, you know, your paradigm, which is, it seems like Shabbat is like the, the day of choosing up. Yeah. Yeah, because when, when we stop and we reconnect, then we can begin to become these curious seekers and searchers of our experience. Yeah, and I like that too, because I think a lot of people, um, myself included, like you often, you get confused when you hear Shabbat, you think rest. But Shabbat is often not restful. It, it's, it's really just you're doing different things. And I, and I love the idea that the day is about choosing connection, choosing up, choosing a different paradigm. It's not about doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's just, it's moving out of the creative work of the week and reconnecting to the soul work and, and bringing that as, as the primary focus. Now, not to say that we disengage from the physical world, right? We're Jewish, we eat, we drink, we do rest because we are bringing the body and soul back into harmony. Rev Cook talks about this, the, the tshuvas haguf, the return of the body and that we need to actually pay attention to the needs of the body 
as the foundation for the returning of the soul. Beautiful. Yeah, so nice. You wrote an article this week in Nashim um, about connection, and, and I think you mentioned something about mirror neurons. Yes, yes. One, one, of, one of my favorite uh, pieces of science to, to get excited about. So I will say, I, it was published this week. I wrote it last month, as is kind of the world of writing and, and I guess journalism is, you know, there's a pu publication date and there are deadlines before. And so it was really interesting to read it this week when I use examples, for instance, like standing in line at the grocery store mm -hmm. and, and when you see a friend and, uh, you know, how, how quickly the world can flip. Now, no, I guess maybe people are standing in line at the grocery store, but it's six feet apart and, and outside. Right. <laughs> so, so the world is different, and I, I think that the message is more relevant than ever. So, so mirror neurons are one of these amazing discoveries in the world of neuroscience and research where we have a confirmation of the Torah wisdom that has been there for us all along. What do I mean? One of, one of my favorite things is when we discover in modern research or literature a confirmation of Torah's wisdom and a place where there is this beautiful synergy. So mirror neurons are based on, on the understanding of how our brain works. So some neuroscience 101. Uh, when I move my arm, I have motor neurons that fire. And so right now there are motor neurons firing saying, you know, left arm move and, and open and come back and forth, fine. Now, what, what was discovered was that when you, so all of you on Zoom in your homes are watching me move my arm, that you actually have a subset of those mirror neurons that are firing, meaning your arm is completely still, but there is a portion of those same mirror neurons that would be used for you to move your arm that are firing away while my arm is moving and you are still. So in a sense, those neurons, those motor neurons are taking on the perspective of my motor neurons. Now, this gets better because there, the same thing happens at a sensory level. So when I feel something touch, so right now there are a set of sensory neurons that are firing away in my brain, letting me know that my right hand is now being touched. Now, while you are watching that, you also have a subset of sensory neurons that are mirroring my sensory experience, meaning that they are, again, taking on the perspective that they are having at a neurological level and empathetic response to what's happening in my body physically. Now, if this is the case physically, what does it say for us at an emotional level? That when we see someone suffering, that we are actually wired to have an empathetic response. Ah, but remember the beginning of our discussion and we're talking about low level connection. What if I don't see them? What if I'm not paying attention? Well, then my mirror neurons are just gonna be, you know, sleeping because it's the visual cortex that's going to awaken things. Remember well, I said- Will those mirror neurons work the same if you see someone digitally? I believe so. I believe so. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist. This is my 101 and, and don't me ask me too much more on that one. Um, I, I did take uh, neurophysiology as an occupational therapist, so it's not my area of specialization, but I believe that it would. I don't I'm definitely hearing like 
um, uh, you know, anecdotally from people like, oh, I saw my therapist today, we did a digital session. And I've been asking, like, is it as connective for you? And a lot of people are, are saying, yeah, it's, it's, as long as I can see their eyes, as long as we feel like we're speaking to each other, it, yeah. it, it's powerful. Yeah, so we, we actually know that there is that neurobiology of connection can exist in a sort of telehealth context. And, and I guess if, if we want to think about the power of what we're looking at, whether it's on a screen or in person, and how this is so important, specifically now, COVID-19, Pesach coming up, we need really only look to the Torah to see that mirror neurons are going to open us up to, to what is actually going on around us and, and the possibility for deeper connection. So, in the Torah, we hear of Moshe, and Moshe is brought up in the palace, right? He's this Jewish boy brought up separate from his people. And the Torah tells us that he grows up and he goes out to see what's going on with his brethren. And the Lushan, the language there is the Yarbasiv Lotam, that, that he sees their suffering. And Rashi there asks, like, what does it mean that he, that he sees their suffering? And the explanation that Rashi gives, the commentary on the Torah, is that he, he trains his eyes and then his heart to be distressed over what's going on. And if we ever wanted a, a guide for us right now, I think that's it that if we want to feel more passionately connected, then we have to think about what we're looking at. And this goes back to really being more intentional, becoming the heroes of this storyline, not being passive, but really thinking, you know, where do I want to be putting my attention? And if Rashi is telling us that Moshe looked and, and he, he put his eyes and then his heart to be distressed, I think that one of the real keys to being more connected at a time when we are struggling with, with what it means to be connected, with what it means to, to be choosing right now, is right there. Right? It's mirror neurons. The Torah was telling us what you look at is what you're going to become emotionally connected to. If it's true about Moshe, it's certainly true for us. And, and in this article that I was chatting with you about, Ellie, I said there, you know, so, so when you are in line at the grocery store, when you're talking to a friend, really look up, choose to have some more high quality connection. And the, the platform is different today. Yeah, like it's, it's maybe saying hello to someone from, from the backyard across the street. Maybe it's saying hello to the person you are living with and having no space from. And in both places, the, the commonality and the connection is choosing what we look at because that, that will be where our heart is connecting. And if the, there was a time that the world was more open to empathy, to, to arousing our hearts in that direction, I believe it's now. So get your mirror no neurons rocking. Yeah, I like that. You know, I just, I just want, okay, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, just one more thing about the mirror neurons is, I think part of the thing that's exciting about it is that it's wired in. Um, all of us, or most of us are in cognitive overdrive right now. And that means that the part of us that can make more active choices might be kind of fatigued. 
So all you gotta do is think about who you're looking at. And that means being discerning, right? So you're talking about that like information overload. And if you, if you just make some good eye contact, ah, already that heart connection is going to grow. Yeah, I think also like, it's also what you're looking at. It's not even just, it's not only who you're looking at, it's what you're looking at. I remember hearing um, somebody say, I can't remember who right now, but what, what, what fires together wires together. So like, if you're looking yeah. at something and it's eliciting a response, you're wiring yourself to be connected to that thing. And I think um, with so much Netflix and Disney and streaming and you know all the YouTube and the TikTok and all of the content that's available, the numbers they just put out yesterday on the CBC, the number, the amount of people who are streaming online and how much content is being watched right now it is mm -hmm. astonishing. Wow. Yeah, I was wondering if there was a way to track that. Yeah. Yeah. And that we're wiring ourselves to whatever we're exposing ourselves to. Um, so I think that idea of low, like low connection, high connection, what do those things look like? Um, is what are we, where are we choosing to, what are we choosing to wire ourselves to? Absolutely. Because whichever direction we train our attention is, is where the grooves will go. Right. Right. How does that, I mean, we're coming up to Pesach, so we're, we're all going to be sitting around a table, um, talking about the story of the Exodus. What are some of the connections and wirings that we're supposed to get out of that experience? Hmm. So I think that the question is the answer itself. And that is to say that one of the most important aspects of the Seder, of the Seder experience, and it really is, if there is one thing we take away from it, this, it is that the Seder is an experience. It is a journey. It is not a cognitive exercise. It is meant to be something that transforms us. And the, the opening for that is the question itself, is the ability really to ask questions. And one of the things that I see a lot of people struggle with is actually asking questions. And, and I don't just mean, you know, which way should I go, but deep questions that help us probe beneath the surface and remain really curious. Yeah, I love that too. And I think a lot of people who this year are doing their own Seder for the first time, you know, I have a lot of friends who say, well, our Seders have always been, you know, our Zadie reads the whole Chagada and we all just kind of like hang out and eat. Um, and I think the question, what you're saying about asking questions is that you can actually bring conversation and questions and meandering through that journey, you know, to your table where you can still have that experience of reading the tradition, but how do we add um, questions and transformation to that experience somehow? Absolutely. And, and one of the things that is interesting is if we, we look at the structure in the Seder itself and the preamble, and that's really the kind of like getting things warmed up and trying to open us up. And we move from the four questions and we move through, we move to the Arba Bunny, the four children, the four sons. And if we look at those four sons, we have the Chacham, the wise one, we have the Rasha, the, the wicked, the, the sort of cynical son, we have the Tom, the simple son, and we have the, the one who is un, 
able, who, who does not know how to ask questions. The she'eno yodea lishol. And it's an interesting thing. I, I, I think about this, and, and, and Rabbi Daniel Rowe of HUK talks about this idea in helping us understand who that child is. So anyone here who has a two, three, four-year-old child in their life, um, or, or has had them, knows that those actually are the kids who ask all the why questions. Those are the kids who are the most curious. And I remember when my daughter, who is now you know, a teenager, was maybe two, three years old, she was in the why phase. And I, I remember we were walking down the street and she was asking, you know, but why this, but why that? And you know, at first, sometimes we give these sort of like pat answers. And then I was like, well, okay, like I'm here, she's asking. And I began, I think she was asking about something about like why there was a stop sign. Yeah. And I began explaining, traffic infrastructure and traffic calming and safety and you know she kind of lost interest and it's like okay maybe answer appropriate to the kid's age but you know it was entertaining me uh, but you know the, the point there for for all of us is the way in which we are lulled and, and our school system does a beautiful job of this unfortunately often of lulling us out of asking curious questions of being divergent thinkers because we want to get the answer right and that doesn't mean necessarily as you said Ellie that that kind of meandering and so what the Seder is doing for us in giving this model of these four sons is telling us about different aspects of ourselves and there's the idea that all four children really are, are different aspects of ourselves which means each and every one of us has that she'inu yodea lishol within we all have that part that actually has forgotten, perhaps, how to be really curious. Did you ever watch Columbo? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. I've heard of in a long time. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, so, Wasn't he the guy with the trench coat? He was the guy with the trench coat. So <laughs> I found that now when I use this example with clients, like I have to sort of gauge myself on, on their age. Yeah, but, but people closer to my experience, I'm able to use this example when we talk about getting curious about what's going on inside. Because so much of the time, we are looking for the right and wrong way, or I'm going to try to fix this. And really, a process of discovery, of emotional discovery, certainly of spiritual discovery, is going to require us to get like into Columbo mode. Huh, like what's going on here? Because he was that detective, you know, everybody else on scene would kind of think they had gathered all the evidence and he would pause and he wouldn't be afraid of the pause. He wouldn't be afraid of stretching that process. And he would in that, process in that that gap between observation and then question he would come up with new and more curious questions and the she'ino yodea lishol is that part inside each and every one of us where we've kind of maybe stopped being curious but not just that and and this is this is the the piece that is maybe the the central point that might carry us through the seder and that is that questions aren't just a cognitive give and take the Vilna Gaon describes questions as an indicator that we want something more. And so to ask is to seek and to search. And so that the Seder night is coming to, so to speak, crack us open to the part of ourselves that really wants deeper connection, meaning, that, that searching part of ourselves. I, I love how Greg Lavoy, author Greg Lavoy, talks about questions as, as a chariot that will carry us across our life. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
So we, we want to find our chariots. We want to reconnect to that part of ourselves that is searching and seeking. And, and the cracking open, you know, I'm sure all of us, even before COVID-19, have had experiences that have cracked us open. Loss, heartbreak, whatever challenge. And we know that when we are cracked open, when we are raw to the world, is also the place where sometimes we do our most magical growth where there is rebirth. And so too, the Seder night specifically this year, I think is really about opening ourselves up to that journey and, and bringing that curious brain back online, which again, you know, as you said, Ellie, when we're so kind of overstimulated and hypervigilant, it's hard to be curious. And yet when we begin to do some of that seeking and searching, when we reconnect to a part of ourselves, that opens the door to the rest of the journey. I think that's so great too, because you know, when I think about, um, when I think about any protagonist in a story, it usually, they become the protagonist through asking a question that no one else is asking. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think when we do that with the Seder, the potential is that the Seder, that story of leaving Egypt becomes our story when we ask something about it. You know, we suddenly are part of that story. Like, well, what was that? Why did that happen? What does that even mean? Like, that sounds crazy. Or, you know, how does this apply to my life now? How is that relevant? What is What slavery do we have today? And suddenly mm -hmm. when we ask those questions, we actually become protagonists in that story. Rather, And that, I think, is that transformational aspect that you're talking about. It becomes our story, not just a story. Beautiful. And, and, and it's so fitting for the Seder where we are told that we are obligated to see ourselves as if we personally left Egypt. And so whatever bridge we can make in such a way where it becomes a personal experience is the task of the Seder. You know, I, I was thinking how different this year's Seder will be from other years. And I was remembering, you know, some of the Sedarim of my, of my childhood. And there was a series of years where we would have a Seder with a couple of other families with young, with children, you know, kind of around our age. And invariably somewhere along the path of, of the meal of Shulchan Aruch, the, the children would leave the table and go to, you know, like play in the other room. And I remember one year we decided we were going to make a reenactment of the, the Seder, of the Seder and the, the, the Exodus story. And you know, I have such a vivid recollection of standing there and thinking like, okay, like, you know, we're in a house. It's late night Seder. How are we going to recreate the splitting of the sea? And I was blessed to grow up in a home uh, with a brown corduroy couch. So the <laughs> 70s and 80s were good decades for corduroy. <laughs> I remember we took all these brown corduroy pillows off the couch and we took this big blue quilt that that my parents had and we folded the blue quilt over the brown pillows and then when Moshe was leading the Jewish people and he came to that Yamsuf, we parted the blue quilt and there were the brown corduroy pillows the dry land amidst the the water and we marched along those pillows and although you know I my couch is not brown corduroy and and I my, my quilt in my home is is more gray the essence of that is unchanged and the essence of the Jewish commitment to not just telling this as a historical story but re-experiencing it in a way that becomes alive is very much alive today 
And what those seders are going to look like will be different. And we normally ask, why is this night different from all other nights? Why is this seder different from all other seders? And I, I, I hope it's okay. My mother is on Zoom with us, so I, I will ask your permission to share a comment you made. Um, my mother spoke about how she remembers her first seder. And she was maybe about three years old and her parents who were Holocaust survivors who came from large Gerich Hasidic families and surely had sat at long Seder tables and experienced you know, great, great ritual and beauty in their homes had been talking to her about this, this thing called the Seder and she was gonna be allowed to stay up so late. And she described how as you know, three years old, she came to that Seder table and it was her and her mother and father at this little table. And like, this was the Seder. This was this big excitement. And then over the years, the family grew and, and we have been blessed over the past decades to sit at large Seder tables and to share that together. And she commented that in a sense, this year, it's full circle. Because once again, she will sit at a small Seder table in a much more quiet way. And yet, as I've been thinking about that and thinking about this, this generational um, peak and valley, so to speak, you know, that in some ways we are being challenged very differently, you know, and yet in our own ways to become heroes of this storyline, it is full circle, but with a slight tweak. And that is that we often talk about time in Judaism, not as this, this flat circle, but rather as a spiral. And in a sense, historically, perhaps we are coming back to, to a certain point that our, our satyrs are small, they are different, we are in crisis. And yet something about that volume being turned down, about getting a little bit more quiet, a little bit more inner, and for some people that will be literally having a satyr on our own, also makes the opportunity for that journey being that much more authentic. You know, this is not just like, okay, we show up at Seder, but this is ground zero of reality for a lot of us right now. This is, who am I really going to be 12 months from now? And am I willing to go on a journey that will shape perhaps the rest of my life? And so in that sense, yes, it's full circle and we are ascending along that spiral and God willing, reaching closer to, to ultimate redemption, which is really what we, what we point ourselves to on Seder night. Yeah, thank you. I think that's so beautiful. I also, it, it, um, it pushes me also to think, you know, one of the things that we often push against order, we often push against structure. Um, and, you know, when we think about, say, the Sidur, right, also related to the word Seder, like the order, the, the, we're told what prayers to say, mm -hmm. and the Seder is order, right, so the order of what to do, in some ways, those things are created for times just like this, where if you're in your home by yourself and you don't have a Haggadah, how are you going to know what to do? Because you're not necessarily with other people who are guiding you or doing it with you together. Or if you can't pray at shul, you know, you have these structures that were built in order to sort of allow us mm -hmm. to still have some kind of practice. Um, but then when you're on your own, you have also the freedom to try to figure out, well, how do I do this now, either by myself or with four people instead of 40 people? 
you know, it really makes me think, you know, the things sometimes that we push against that structure and order um, are also built to be able to support us through when things are more chaotic. Absolutely. I, I often talk about this with clients. One of the things that we talk about is how the structure of the therapy is the therapy itself. Mm. And for instance, if they come in and, and we have some, I, I work differently according to different clients' needs, but sometimes I will set an agenda with a client and we might start to deviate from that agenda. And if it's someone who really needs more safety and what we would describe as containment, I might name it in the middle of the session and say, hey, like, I'm really tempted to follow this thread with you. And because part of my commitment to you is to create a contained and safe space in the therapy, I'm going to keep us on task. And it's not always comfortable, but it's reassuring. And if we look at the structures that, that Torah and Halacha have given us, I think it's very, very similar to your point, that, that the structures keep us safe. And, you know, one of the things that, that I learned this week that brought me great comfort in, in the seeming chaos and, and brought some order is a, is a challenge to this idea that these are unprecedented times. And one of the things that, that I learned is you, the, there have been other, maybe not pandemics recently, but there have been pandemics and there have been epidemics and there have been wise people in the Jewish people who have lived through these sorts of experiences before. And there is a, a letter from Yisrael Salanter written, and I think it was 1848. And it was when there was a cholera epidemic in Vilna and one of his students had lost a child. And it's a letter to, to this student about how to conduct oneself in an epidemic. I mean, if there's nothing else but to say, our sages have contended with this before. This is maybe not as unprecedented as we might think, and that there is going to be wisdom to carry us through. And one of the points that he makes there is that at a time when there is an epidemic, when there is illness, and we are needing to go inside and be careful, is that it's a time to be very careful to be besimcha, to cultivate joy. And he talks about how this is something that is important for our own health, as well as creating positivity for the people around us. And, and you know, it might kind of be like a paradigm flip. We might think like, this is a time to get really serious and super pious. Like, you know, what are you doing right now to be a better person? And, and, and absolutely, we want to be growing. I'm, I'm not saying that. However, growth doesn't always look like, you know, furring our brows and getting super, you know, hunkered down. But rather, how can we actually be more connected to joy, to positivity at this time? And listen, there's very good research to support that at an autoimmune level, if we are in a space of positivity, that that actually helps health healing, uh, will, will help us fight any illness, God forbid. But it's also at a spiritual level that if we can connect more to this joy, that we will be, so to speak, doing our peace for humanity right now. And, and we see that we see that in the Seder because we are talking about a story of redemption. We are talking about going from slavery and oppression to freedom. 
and that we acknowledge that we are not yet at the end of this story. That Seder night and the, the Seder experience is pointing us towards the ultimate redemption and we're not there yet. And you know, I don't need to tell you that, to look outside, to see all of the darkness and the suffering and the seeming chaos. And yet we always end our Seder, how? L'shana haba b'yerushalayim habnuya. May we next year be in the rebuilt Jerusalem. And to me, this is the ultimate statement of joy and commitment to hope, whatever the darkness is. And, and this is really the trademark of the Jewish spirit, which is to live in a world that, yes, has darkness and not to deny it, right? As, as a therapist, I would never say like invalidate the struggle, but rather once we validate it, to once again fiercely commit to finding joy, to finding light and, and holding on to that hope. And, and I have to say, whenever I sing that at the end of my Seder, I think of the generations before us, the Bobbies and Zadies, the Alta Bobbies and Alta Zadies, who sang this and have hoped for us and have given us that, that example and that legacy. And you know, as we said, Greg Lavoie, this idea of the question as that chariot, who've given us this chariot to, to carry us forward, but also given us a responsibility to, to carry it with them. Yeah, beautiful. I love that thought. And I love it because it ties us back to, um, to pace off, it ties us back to what you said about Shabbat in terms of, you know, being a day where we bring light. Um, and I think it really gives us a good context to go into Passover with. Um, I want to take a minute just to open us up a little bit for questions. Um, I want to give people an opportunity to just sort of jump in. Um, if anybody has a question, you can either press your space bar, which will unmute you for a moment, um, or you can raise your hand and I'm happy to also to unmute you. I'm actually just going to take a little photo of our screen because it's so fun to send it to let people know. Um, there's also a question on the chat. So Amanda's asking, can you share the source of the rabbi that lives through the pandemic? Um, so we can yes. share, if you want to, if you have a link or if you have a, I, a um, yeah, I'll post any resources from this talk. Yeah. So it's, in, it's in this book. Yeah. Hold on. Let me just make it bigger so people can see. And it is, hold on, I'll tell you, it is letter 23. And show us the cover again. It's the Ori Israel. It's Rabbi Israel Salanzer. Okay, super cool. Maybe I'll get you to take a picture of that particular yes, letter. Absolutely. We'll, Please we'll remind me. Yeah. yeah, no, I will just say that's the English version. The Hebrew version is a little bit more nuanced. And one of the things in there is where he talks about the kinds of joy that we should be feeling. And he, he references a Pasuk, a verse from Nehemiah, where it talks about God's enjoyment being our strength. And the language that's used there is chedva. And I've always wondered if this is an urban myth, but I know we, we say that the Inuit have several words for, for, for snow, which tells us about their culture and their experience. So as Jews, we have several words for simcha, for joy. Um, and ditza, chedva, and, and so along with simcha, this word of chedva is a little bit different there and maybe worth noting at a time like this, which is that simcha, we, we often define as the joy of achieving. 
of, of that connecting, of that getting somewhere. And, and that's why even we have simcha sometimes when we're doing very difficult things, because we feel like we're doing what we are meant to be doing. Whereas chedva is this joy of seeing the oneness of God in the world. Chedva, we look at the chet and the dalad, is connected to the word echad. It's that unity. And so at a time like this, there can be joy when we begin to a little bit connect the dots. And that might be the practice of looking for the silver linings, looking for the hands of God, and becoming really students of the Almighty in, in this experience. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. Any other questions out there? Um, anything that, let me just check the chat. Does anybody have any, any questions, comments, concerns, or feedback? <laughs> okay, um, I think what we're gonna do, I'm gonna just mention a couple of, um, of resources um, and then maybe Alana, you can sort of wrap us up and, and take us into Shabbat. Um, in terms of um, encouraging questions at your Seder table, um, on the JFI website, um, there's, a, a, there's a tab that says resources. Um, you'll find it, uh, I think, near the gallery tab. And in there, there's a downloadable um, conversation starter pack called Table Talk, and it's a Passover edition. Um, and I will try to post the link also on the Jewish Family Institute Facebook group. Um, but basically what you can do is you can print out, it's a PDF of tons of questions. Um, they're little cards that you can cut out and put on your Seder table. Um, and it's a great opportunity for people to get a chance to you know, stimulate that type of curious mind, right? Like if you could have your Seder anywhere in the world right now, where would you be? You know, what, who would you have at your table? It, it really, you know, there's some funny questions for kids and there's some serious questions. And I think it really provides that opportunity to sort of open up that curious mind. So I'm going to post that on the Jewish Family Institute Facebook group. Um, and I just wanted to mention that next week, we will not be on, on Friday because it is a, a hug, um, but we will be back on the 17th, which is the day after Passover ends. So uh, just stay, uh, just look out for that. Um, and I think that's all the housekeeping and information. So I'm gonna pass this back to Alana. Alana, maybe you can leave us with a, a passing, a, a choosing up thought. For those of you who haven't seen Alana's book, this is her book. I think it's the mirror image that you're seeing, but if you haven't seen it, you can order it on Amazon. It's an amazing book. It's a good one to read right now during you know, this particular time in the world because it really gives a sense of how do you apply this idea of choosing up to your life right now in whatever circumstances you're in. Okay, back to you, Alana. Thank you, first of all, this is just such a joy and such a wonderful way to be getting ready for Shabbat and into the mindset of bringing more light. Yeah, so remembering that light is that increased peace, increased faith in the world. And, and also ramping up, getting ready for Pesach. So I, I wanna leave you with a thought about Pesach, about Shabbat, about COVID-19, and that is as follows we should be changed by this experience. And some of those changes will be really small and that's where the most powerful change will happen. I, again, was thinking, you know, Pesach, like what, what are the things that make it special? What are those things that become the anchors from year to year? And for me, you know, back to, to my mother's Pesach experience, there's this bowl, it has these 
painted uh, orangey yellow flowers with, with gold lining around them that was always her chicken soup bowl when she was a little girl in her parents' home. And every year it comes out with the Pesach dishes. And, and I was thinking, you know, what are some of the ways that I've tried to make my experience special? And, and I, I thought back to one year, my daughter was maybe one or two years old and I was newly on my own as a single parent and I was getting ready for Pesach. And I remember the courage that it took to go and buy myself a piece of jewelry to feel like, you know, I'm going to give myself something for this, this holiday and to feel beautified in this experience. And, and I, I bring up that chicken soup bowl and that bracelet because both of those to me are gestures, are, are evidence and acts of hope. But not only that, they come out of times when we are squeezed. That chicken soup bowl was bought by my grandparents, who, as my bubby said, came to Canada without a word of English and a penny in her pocket. I bought that bracelet as an act of hope and commitment to, to feeling beautiful and, and ready for the Chag, for the festival. This year, our Sadaram and our Pesach experience will be different, and it should be. Make sure that each of us, that we all find a way to not just make it different, but make it special. And in whatever way that we make it special, I hope that we carry that through so that from now on, every year when we come to Pesach, we say, yeah, like that was that, that new way we started learning or that song we started singing or that practice that I took on in myself because times were different. But now I always do that because that was the experience that squeezed me or cracked me open and connected me to a new way of being and a different possibility. So that this year's experience should be different, should change us and should carry us like that chariot towards God willing, the ultimate gula, the ultimate redemption. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to join our live Zoom each week, go to myjfi.com register to sign up for our Zoom session on Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would also love to hear your choosing up stories and moments. Please send us an email and let us know more at ellie at myjfi.com. To learn more about Alana Kendall, her book and her work, go to her website, alanakendall.com. Until next week, let's find our way to choose up.